This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabwile. So today, Thabiti, we're going to take on the question of immigration. Uh, it's in the news a lot, of course, uh, and lots of different parts of this problem. Um, illegal immigration, um, our current legal immigration system, and of course, this sort of in-between category of children who were brought here against the law or against the current law, but didn't, didn't actually do it themselves, what liberals would call the dreamers. Yeah, so Nick, talk, let's let's sort of go ahead and dive into this, do a deep dive. Walk us through um, the fault lines of the immigration debate today. Yeah, so let's start as we usually do with a little bit of history. And I did do a little bit of research on sort of what's the history of America's immigration uh, policy and politics. Obviously, I think we know the kind of mythology around American immigration, the idea that we're a nation of immigrants, the Statue of Liberty inscribed with give me your tired, your poor. But what has actually been the state of law? in terms of immigration for the last uh, 200 or so odd years. Well, in the beginning, as we all know, citizenship was limited to white people. And um, actually, the 1790 Naturalization Act, that's like one year after the Constitution comes into effect, the the Naturalization Act of 1790 codifies this. Um, But if you were white, the borders were basically open to you. Uh, If you wanted to come, you could come. And for the next century, immigration policy sort of gets tinkered with here and there. Uh, Most of the time when we make immigration policy for that first century, it's about restricting criminals or dangerous people from entering the country. Then fast forward to 1870. After the Civil War, uh, this Naturalization Act is amended to allow African Americans to naturalize, a consequence of the, um, among other things, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. The next restrictions that are placed on immigration are on Asian Americans. Uh, The Asian Exclusion Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 essentially prohibit any people of Asian descent from immigrating. The next watershed year is 1921, the 1921 Emergency Quota Act. Now, this law is important because it sets the paradigm for our current system. It's the first ever to set quotas for immigration that are based on national origin. And importantly, the national origin quotas they use are tied to current, by which I mean current in 1921, current representation in the population. So it's designed to essentially keep the makeup of the country the same. Also, for the first time in 1921, total annual immigration is capped at 350,000 people per year. Then in 1951, we have the Immigration and Nationality Act. That is actually technically still the controlling legislation today. It's been updated and amended several times since then. But in 1951, this act finally abolishes race as a consideration and updates its quotas. Though now, because they're based on the 1920 census, the quotas still favor immigrants from Europe. So let's pause here for a second. That's kind of everything prior to the modern era of immigration. Uh, But for the first century and a half of our history as a country, the borders are essentially open to people of Caucasian descent and later people of African descent. This, by the way, included all of Latin America, because back then, sort of Caucasian sort of included all of that. The policies weren't based on quotas or caps. They were based on ethnicity. America's white majority was essentially built and maintained during these first 150 years of our history. Then, the 1965 Immigration Act essentially puts the system we have today in place. Again, there have been some revisions since then, but the current system basically looks like this. There no longer is a national origins quota system, but there still are caps on how many people can immigrate legally to this country each year. And there are categories of preference 
which have been revised a few times since 1965 to give us the policy that we have today. So today, about a million immigrants come into the U.S. per year. The official cap is 675,000, but there's one exception to that cap, and that's immediate relatives of current citizens, what people on the right today call chain migration, relatives of citizens coming into the countries. So this is how we end up averaging about a million people per year. How are those people selected? Current immigration policy basically follows four principles. So family reunification is one of those principles, the idea that, again, a relative should be able to come. So if you've ever met an immigrant who says, I've got a wife or an uncle or a child in my country of origin and I'm waiting to bring them over, that's the sort of phenomenon you see, and U.S. policy favors that kind of reunification. Um, U.S. labor market contributions, so there's a category for are you skilled, are you educated, do you have high potential to contribute to the economy? Um, origin country diversity. So you might have heard in the news of the so-called diversity visa lottery. There is a category for distributing some visas to kind of underrepresented countries by lottery. Um, and then finally, humanitarian assistance. This would be refugees, people seeking political asylum, other things like that. Those are sort of the four reasons why one might give for a person to immigrate, to be allowed to immigrate the United States. So going back to your original question, Thabiti, what are the fault lines today? Um, the first question that I think is contested is about current illegal immigration. So right now we have about 10 million or so, a little over 10 million immigrants living here that are outside this system. They came here either without a visa or they overstayed a visa. Uh, what do you do with them? Right? Do you find a way to legalize them, which some critics would call amnesty? Uh, do you try to deport them from the country? Or do you do something in between? So that's kind of the first question. The second question is about the, that legal system I just described. Is it the right legal system? Is there anything about it that we want to change? Um, there are some, right, the, the current sort of nature of the debate is that some would say, well, the principle of family re reunification, I'd rather favor labor market contribution more or economic contribution more. Um, should we go to a merit-based system, for example? Um, and underlying that question of future legal immigration is a deeper one, which is, is immigration good for us? Is it good for us economically as a country? Is it good for us culturally? Right? And embedded in that question is probably the deepest one, which is who gets to be an American and why? Yeah. Let, let me pull on a couple things there, make sure that um, I'm hearing you correctly, maybe the listeners hear you correctly. Yeah. You're saying in this sketch of, of the country's immigration policy, that for all intents and purposes, the first 150 years or more um, are specifically designed to maintain a white majority in the country. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what, what are the implications of that? I mean, unpack that. Gosh, I, I can think of a few. One is simply to say that um, whenever we talk about sort of who was here first or who kind of has pride of place or of preference, mm -hmm. It's not clear to me that the fact that there happen to be a lot more white people in this country than there are other kinds of people necessarily means that we have to be or should be or are destined to be, right, a country with that particular type of cultural majority, right? I'm not sure that there's any purchase to an argument like that. Um, secondly, I think it's worth noting that, um, you know, so when, when a person who perhaps is a multi-generational American says, it says, you know, it's... It's uh, unfair that new people get to come in. That person has to go back to, well, when were they allowed to come in and under what conditions? Odds are, if you're a white, multi-generational American, your 
ancestors came into this country under much more favorable terms than the sort of Mexican-American or Guatemalan who's trying to get into the country today, or the refugee from Syria, or whomever else, right? It was essentially an open borders policy within that community. Um, so I do think that that's important. And, and it goes to that sort of last most fundamental question that you were raising there about who gets to be an American and, yeah. and how we define that. Uh, I was struck by the the bit of history you gave us there in the late 1800s mm. um, where immigration policy was um, dealing with this question of Asian yeah. people coming to the country. What's the, what's the history there? What's the background around a kind of anti-Asian uh, immigration stance? Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting, right, because you don't have, for example, an anti-African stance mm. or I, I think – the way immigration policy tends to work is that it reacts against whatever happens to be happening at the time, hmm. right? So uh, we, even within, for example, among Europeans, you'll find waves of immigration and for a time, for example, Eastern and Southern Europeans are coming in and the Western and Northern Europeans who came prior don't like that, mm -hmm. right? And so they try to find, well, they try to find ways to make life difficult for those people, but it never gets codified into law. I'm from California. I'm half Asian American myself. And uh, so we, we learned this actually growing up in California history, that basically in the, in the mid-19th century, you start to see more Asian immigrants for whatever reason. Um, certainly coming to help build, for example, the Transcontinental Railroad on the mm -hmm. Pacific side, mm -hmm. um, to help with kind of settling the Western frontier, often brought in as sources of cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly walking among us are these people who look different mm. from the white majority. And that's enough to say, you know what? We need a law that's specifically going to curtail or prohibit uh, that group from coming in. So I'm not sure there's any particular animus towards Asians. It's just they happen to be in the wrong place. We happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in terms of when we were coming into the country. And so similar, you could draw a parallel to today when we don't see a bunch of Asians immigrating, right? We see a bunch of Latin Americans immigrating. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the sort of, just because they're quote unquote Caucasian doesn't matter so much to us as the fact that they speak a different language. Some of them are in fact sort of differently complected than we are. We're not sure we like that. And so maybe there should be restriction or curtailment of that kind of immigration. Mm -hmm. Amen, amen. And that's a good history. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, great. Well, so that's the history. Those are the fault lines. Um, Pabidi, I'm interested in your take on kind of what does the Bible tell us about this subject? Uh, there are a couple things I could think about, about kind of what is a nation, what makes up a nation, what, how do we think about boundaries between nations? Um, what, what kind of guidance can the Bible give us about these sets of issues? Yeah. Well, the idea of, of nations is probably first and best laid down in the scriptures in Genesis 10, the table of nations. Uh, there it's after the flood. Noah and his three sons and their wives, they're the, they're the eight people who escaped God's judgment in the flood. And the table of nations, what you get is this story of both continuity and diversification. Continuity, because they're all descended from Noah uh, and his sons, um, but diversification as the people spread out to um, different places, and, and they are known by um, their family and their kin and their language. So biblically, that's the rudiments of of a nation, really. A nation is a, a, a collection of families, um, whether you call them tribes or clans or so on. They're going to share certain customs, share language, mm -hmm. uh, share um, geography in that way. And so mm -hmm. uh, that, that's sort of the rudimentary elements of what we call nationality or nation, which is not at all the same thing as race, uh, a fictional, uh, pseudoscientific kind of construct. 
that that argues that there's some essential difference um, in humanity along what we call racial lines, uh, Africoid, Caucasoid, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so what you see in the scripture is that these nations rise and they fall, right? So the idea of a nation is closely uh, linked to God's providential and sovereign dealing with persons uh, in the world. And I think a, a, an important text for us to think about when we think about immigration policy, right? If we think about it as Christians, we want our thoughts to begin with God and how God is acting in the world. Uh, an important text for us would be Acts seventeen twenty six. Where there, Paul says that he's made all the nations of the earth of, of one blood, no King James translation, or, or from one man. So he's saying, listen, every nation you think you recognize, they all go back to Adam. There's one human race, right? Um, but he says something interesting there, too, in terms of God's providence. And God has determined the, the times and the boundaries of their habitation, right? So there's a very real sense in which God is very active in where people live. Uh, where nations uh, live and move and, and all those kinds of things. And so um, the movement of people is not an ac accident of history. Um, it's, it's an act of God, really. Um, and, and we want to be people who see the movement of people um, through that lens, right? So the Syria refugee crisis, for example, mm. uh, horrible human, yeah. human rights tragedy. But as people of faith, we also want to recognize that God's God's at work in it uh, in various ways. And that brings us to the second thing that we, mm. we, want, we want to think about. As you go on in Acts, Acts 17, 27, the second thing that Paul says there is in this movement of people, God has evangelistic purposes or missional mm. purposes. So he's determined the habitations of people so that they might be brought close to the gospel, right? And so when we think about an immigration debate, we need to be thinking really as missionaries. Mm. And we need to be thinking about immigration being one way in which the Lord brings the nations to us rather than what he normally calls us to do in Matthew 28, to huh. go to the nations. Um, and we need to be poised to, to share the gospel with these new neighbors um, yeah. that we call immigrants, uh, according to Acts 17, 27. It's funny, just a thought on that. I think about whenever I'm in missiological circles, people talk about the hardest countries to get into right? Mm -hmm. I, apparently using the term 1040 windows out of fashion now, but whatever it was, like mm -hmm. the, the hardest countries to get into, it's not a perfect correlation, but they tend to be the countries that we are most suspicious of immigration from at the same time. That's, right. That's exactly right. So sometimes the hardest country to get into is a function of our own fear of those countries. Um, there, there are some things there in terms of the country's policies, their own, those countries' immigration policies sure. and, and laws against uh, evangelizing and church planning and so yeah. on. So that's, that's often what people mean in terms of you know, hard-to-get-into countries. Um, yeah. But I do think it's, it's right for us to pause and ask ourselves, particularly from a Christian and an evangelistic perspective, if, if we aren't, in fact, making the United States a, a hard-to-get-into country. Yeah. Um, and, and to the extent that we are, how's it impacting our ability to reach the nations um, w without going in that sense. That's a really good point. So we want to think in those terms broadly about God's providence and about uh, our mission in the world to take the gospel to every nation. But then I think we want to have something of God's heart for the immigrant. So it's one thing to think about this in a cold, analytical way. Uh, it's another thing to think about this in a way that sort of mirrors God's own affections. Mm. Um, and so you go to a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, where God reminds Israel that they were sojourners, right? They, mm -hmm. they, were, they were immigrants. Um, they were um, people who for a while did not have a home. 
Um, and God reminds them that not only were they sojourners, but because of that, um, they are to sort of then treat the sojourners among them in a certain kind of way. And the way he defines there is love. He says, I love the immigrant. Um, and so Israel is to have a heart of love for the immigrant. And of course, you come to the New Testament, you find very similar sentiments, right? So all those commands in the New Testament to practice hospitality. We mm-hmm. often think of have dinner with somebody. But the word literally means lover of stranger, hmm. right? And uh, we're told that some people have entertained angels uh, by practicing hospitality, even though they didn't know they were, hmm. they were angels. Um, and so in both the Old and the New Testament, I think we're being exhorted to this love of the other, mm-hmm. right? A kind of xenophilia as a, instead of a xenophobia. Yeah. And much of the immigration policy debate in our country is driven by fear of other yeah. rather than love of other. And this is a place where, as Christians, I think uh, we have an opportunity to be distinct from the world. Yeah. And rather than be responding in fear, to be responding in love in the same way that God himself says he loves the immigrant. Uh, he loves the sojourner. He loves the, the sort of homeless among us in that way. Are we not also, Thabiti, just under the new covenant, are we not also to, con- to think of ourselves as sort of permanent sojourners. No, that's exactly right. And Peter tells us that very clearly in his letter, that we're, we're sojourners, right? We're, pil- we're pilgrims on the way to our home country. And so that, that, that means at least two things, right? One is what I was saying a moment ago. It, it calls us to empathy uh, as, as a sort of primary emotional and imaginative response mm-hmm. to the immigrant. We're to be people who imagine ourselves to be in the other person's shoes uh, and, and therefore empathizes. Now, that's hard if you've never been an immigrant. Yeah. It's hard if you've never been an enslaved people. Yep. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's some imagination that has to happen. Mm. Uh, and I think many Christians are people who have divorced imagination from faith. Uh, and mm. so this is an even harder task in that way. Um, so one thing is it, you know, it calls forth this, this, uh, this empathy for the immigrant. But the second implication of the fact that as Christians we are sojourners in this world is I think it also means we need to hold America loosely. Yeah. Right? This this is not our home. This is not the New Jerusalem. This is mm-hmm. really not despite John Winthrop and others, you know, at the founding, this is not the city on a hill. Right. Right? And so if we are wrapping the faith in the flag and then getting sort of hyper protective of America as if that's the sort of last ages, you know, um, you know, celestial city. Right. Boy, we've missed it. We, we're leaving this place. You know, we're, yeah. we're going to a kingdom that God has prepared for us. And so um, I think that pilgrim mentality should also loosen our grip on America and loosen America's grip in appropriate ways on us. It doesn't mean you don't love our country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't serve our country, don't want the best for it. Um, but it does mean we should not idolize our country. And, and think that this is this is the good life in its final sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, on that point, what would you say to those who might say, well, but part of what makes America America, right, is that we are, you know, I, I'm not sure they'd say it this explicitly, but they almost say like, well, our cultural majority is what makes us a Christian or Christian-ish nation. Mm-hmm. And so shouldn't we fight to preserve that? And isn't that majority under threat if we just sort of allow any kind of immigration willy-nilly well i mean i think that's a species of loving the country in the wrong way yeah right i'm not sure um if the country's ever really been a a sort of christian majority cult- culture or country 
that, that's part of the mythology, particularly for Christians who, yeah. who see themselves as patriots. But, you know, you could go down the list of the founding fathers and, and you could put people in different columns as to whether or not they were Christians or not and yeah. so on. Um, and, and arguably that much of the country's history with regard to um, immigrants, with regard to other people groups, mm. a lot of the country's treatment of people is, is anything but Christian. Right. Um, and so I, I wouldn't want to, as a Christian, sort of subscribe to that kind of uh, revisionism and romanticism yeah. about the country. Um, and I certainly then wouldn't want that to fuel that, that xenophobia, that, that fear of others, and that suspicion of immigration in a way that um, then begins to look like it's, it's racially or ethnically targeted yeah. in unhelpful ways. Um, and so I would, I would want to parse that and pull that apart a bit, even at the same time that I'd want to affirm, uh, as you talk about how we think about this biblically, I'd want to affirm the government's legitimate right to set yeah. immigration policy of course. and to think through these things. Uh, Romans 13, um, Peter's letter, we're, we're meant to honor the king. We're meant to honor those in authority over us. And um, we're meant to submit to legitimate government uh, rule insofar as it doesn't violate the lordship of Christ in our lives and so on. Um, so there's a tension there in terms of honoring the government, which may very well be looking to protect the kinds of things you were just asking about, but also as Christians being different from the yeah. country and the government um, and sort of marked out and distinct from the world. And I think practically what that's going to mean from a Christian perspective is, is we're going to do two things, at least in the United States. We're going to, as the scripture commands, 1 Timothy 2 and other places, we're going to pray for those in authority. Yeah. Right. Um, and boy, that needs to be more than a Sunday school answer in mm. terms of how we think about these things. We really do need to pray and believe in the power of prayer uh, and believe that God actually changes things and does things in mm. result in response to our prayer. But then I think it also means we're going to have to bring to bear appropriate pressure. Um, mm. So there are, there are legitimate rights and opportunities we have as citizens in this country to participate in our form of government. Uh, part of what that means is the ability to sort of uh, advocate for in the public square uh, positions and things that we think are in keeping with the good life, uh, are moral and upright. And so not only do we pray, which is its own kind of pressure, um, but we also press those in authority uh, with, our, with our righteous demands or hopes. Think there of Luke 18 and, uh, and uh, the widow mm -hmm. that keeps praying to the judge, you know, looking for justice. Now, that is most specifically about the elect and God bringing justice to the elect, mm. uh, as Jesus says in Luke 18, 8. Um, but that the means for that was prayer and, and petitioning the judge uh, in that parable. And I think that's instructive for us, that, that we ought to be similarly people who pray and petition and pressure uh, for things that we think are right in this area. Now, Nick, you mentioned um, a moment ago that you are from an immigrant family. Mm -hmm. You're talking about half Asian and so on. Tell us your story there. Tell us, tell us the story of your family immigrating to the states and how these things matter or didn't matter. Yeah, no, they actually. It's funny. This is one of the things that makes the issue particularly um, personal to me. So, um, on my father's side of the family, my dad grew up in the states, but his parents were immigrants. So, and my dad's a bit older. So, his parents immigrated in the early 20th century from Spain. Hmm. Um, actually kind of as a reaction against the practices of the Catholic Church then. 
And um, so my dad grew up in New York City, and then eventually, uh, you know, that uh, eventually was it became my dad. Um, my mom grew up in British colonial Malaysia mm. uh, before independence, and was sort of raised kind of nominal Anglican. Mm. And um, then she just immigrated straight up in the in the I think the mid '60s. And so you know, both of them met, they married, I was born, um, and I often think about that if I had grown up in either of my sort of parents countries of origin what you know your missiological point earlier what kind of gospel opportunities would have been available to me mm. right and i think so that's kind of one point the other point i think about a lot is why in what sense is my parents story that led to me being here any less valid right than the story of someone whose ancestors came over you know 400 years ago mm. right um, in what sen- under what theory of humanity can you make that case, right? Like if you, if we're all made, especially as a Christian, if we're all made in God's image, how can I distinguish between one and the other? And this is why I find kind of simple pat answers on immigration to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why I'm suspicious of most immigration kind of restrictionist arguments, although I'm about to <laughs> say a bit about what those arguments are. Um, it, for, if you are an immigrant or any way related to immigrants, and by the way, so my wife, right, her parents immigrated from Haiti. So mm-hmm. we are a kind of family where three of our four parents were born in another country, mm-hmm. right? And the fourth, his parents were born in another country. Mm-hmm. And um, so without generous immigration, our story isn't possible. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what the immigration, restri- what the, particularly, you know, uh, I can excuse whatever on, on the part of the secular immigration restrictionist, but what does the Christian immigration restrictionist have to say to me and my family. I, I really don't know what the answer to that question is. Yeah, and and this is, I, you, you're putting your finger on something that I think Christians need to take more seriously than we do and to work out and apply theology more often than we do. Uh, you're putting your finger on the fact that we every human being on the planet is made in the image of God. Right. Right? Uh, and, and I was arguing a moment ago uh, against the very notion of race, biblically understood, mm-hmm. that we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Eve right. is the mother of all living, and we're close cousins descended from Noah. Um, and so if, if that's what the Bible is telling us about the reality of who we are as persons, and if it's creating that kind of equality and parity, um, I think you have to work pretty hard, or should have to work pretty hard, to sort of arrive at restrictionist conclusions. Yeah. Um, because the, the theology is actually pushing you, I think, in, in a different direction in terms of that sort of most fundamental understanding of our commonality as human beings descended from Adam and Eve uh, and our commonality in terms of being made in God's image. Yeah. So let, let's walk into that then. So talk us a little bit about some of the lay of the land, the, the sort of hawks and doves and restrictionist or um, more permissive sort, sorts of approaches to immigration. Take up one half of that. Yep. So what's the sort of restrictionist case, right, mm-hmm. for, uh, for restrict immigration a bit? Well, I think one thing you could say is there has to be, as you said earlier, there has to be some kind of enforcement of a border of a nation in mm-hmm. order to just kind of know who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is what kind and how generous, et cetera, that it is. So no one, I think no one here is arguing for sort of no border, mm. right? Um, uh, or for the government not having a right to enforce its border. Other arguments that are made are a couple of things. So one is sort of the argument based on the rule of law. So the snarky version of this is, I'm against illegal immigration. You know why? Because it's illegal. (laughs) And that is true. Okay, so real quick. Anybody for illegal immigration? 
No. Right. Right. That that's really well. Okay. Our Ben, our producer, is shaking his head and he's saying, "Well, I don't know. Some people are for illegal the immigration. Folks are for illegal immigration. I think. I think. If I'm if I'm reading Ben's reaction right, right, it's the idea that we are. There are some who you could construe as in favor of looking the other way, as people come illegally and stay illegally, mm-hmm. and in favor of so-called rewarding. Right, those who came here illegally by giving them citizenship, even though they did, they came, you know, contrary to current law. Okay, so that's, but they're not making a principled argument for. We are Ill- for illegal, illegal immigration, right? No, exactly. So, no one's, okay. no one's for that, right. right? I, I would say so. So that's kind of one piece. Uh, so no one's for illegal immigration, right? Um, but there is a lot of illegal immigration that happens, mm-hmm. and shouldn't we be concerned about that? Mm-hmm. That so many break the essentially break the law, whether they know it or not. Obviously, mm-hmm. coming from outside the country, that's sort of one argument. Another argument would be uh, that people make is that, well, can we really handle all those immigrants? Sometimes the argument comes from a cultural place, and I think for the reasons you've already made, that's I think a less valid argument. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the argument comes from from an economic place. So they'll say. And by the way, this is something that kind of Trump people and Bernie Sanders people might agree on. For example, um, more immigrants means lower wages for all of us because the labor supply is larger and, you know, certain categories of workers um, will will uh, be disadvantaged because you've got more cheap labor coming in. And can we really handle that? Um, I think there are others who simply say, well, I'd, I'd, I'd rather change the principles. I don't think it should be based on sort of family reunification. I think it should be, we should just try to get the best and the brightest from other countries. Why not do that, right? And so there are a number, and then of course, there's just the practical kind of security consideration, which is to say, of course, nobody wants to bring additional criminals or bad elements into their country. So to the extent we can avoid that, that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I'm, I'm not sure anyone disagrees with that. It's just a question of sort of how. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are some of, I think, the arguments that we hear. Um, and in fact, right, like you could imagine a situation in which there were, you know, a million people coming over every day and literally the country was overcrowded. And you said, well, we've got to have some kind of system for limiting or restricting the flow. I think the question for us to wrangle with is, is that really what's happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, yeah, definitely government has a responsibility, protect its borders, um, has a responsibility for uh, maintaining the, the well-being of its citizens, the safety of its citizens. Uh, it's right there in Romans 13, reward mm-hmm. those who do good, punish those who do wrong. Uh, so in some sense, immigration policy flows out of that sort of basic responsibility uh, of government, biblically defined, mm. at least. Um, but I do think there's a there's a case to be made for um, not not a more restrictive policy, uh, but a more generous policy. Yep. And um, and and that's not to say a policy with no guardrails on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think the case for me at least sort of falls out among along a number of lines. Number one. I think a more generous policy is more consistent with the Christian idea of grace. Yeah. So this is where I would struggle with a, with a meritocratic approach to immigration. Sure. Um, because we, we, we're people who know we have a standing with Christ that has nothing to do with our merit. Yeah. In fact, we, were, we positively had a demerit mm-hmm. before God, and we were treated better than we deserved. And I think something of that flavor 
um, needs to inform how a Christian approaches immigration, particularly if you're also thinking about it in evangelistic or missional terms. God's bringing the nations to your doorstep. Mm. Our primary objective isn't the safety of America, but the building of the kingdom. Yep. Uh, and if God is helping us with that, Acts 17, he's the one moving peoples, right? If he is helping us with that, then I think the idea of gospel and grace should be sort of bending us toward a kind of generosity yeah. um, in, in terms of immigration. The second thing I would, I would say, um, again, it, against a sort of meritocratic idea that people need to earn their right to come. Again, it's just not the logic of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't earn God's favor. We didn't earn God's providence. Mm-hmm. Now, if we have, a, if we have a, a, a thick understanding of providence, in understanding our own identities and our own nationalities. In other words, we didn't do anything to be born in this country. That's that's, right. that's all down to God's mm-hmm. providence, right? Yeah. Um, it, it then becomes a, a sort of root of an unjust approach to, to immigration policy, mm. um, to act as if we somehow earned that and we're somehow, somehow now protecting that um, such that folks who are not providentially born here have to jump, you know, certain hoops we never had to jump, right? Um, yeah. It's it's a little bit, it's a little bit like saying, you know, should Michael Jordan? I'm dating myself here now. Maybe LeBron <laughs> James. So should should LeBron James or Michael Jordan uh, be able to keep all of their earnings from their you know exorbitant NBA salaries? Mm-hmm. I think the quick answer is, well, yeah, they're the ones who earned it. They play. Da da da. But then you sort of ask yourself the question, where did they get the ability from? Right. right. They had nothing to do. We call it God-given, don't we? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Uh, and so there's an argument that can be made about, well, you know, they work, da 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 it's theirs. Okay, fine. But the gifts themselves, where did they come from? Where did you get the wherewithal to work? Exactly. To practice. All, all from God's hands, right? And I think if we take seriously providence in that way, mm. it, it should loosen our grip on things we think we own but in right. fact, we did not earn. Right. They were given to us by God. And we're meant to share the things that God mm. that God gives us. So just from a kind of theological perspective, I'm, I'm bent toward yeah. uh, a generosity in terms of immigration, even as I recognize that we do need government and others yeah. to make wise decisions about how that gets executed. Yeah. And um, I just want to go back to something we said a minute ago about illegal immigration, mm-hmm. this right. idea that we've got the policy makes a lot of immigration illegal. There are 10 million illegal immigrants, and what do you do with them, mm. right? Mm. And I do think for me, I just, Ben said something in a sidebar to our conversation uh, where he was just saying, well, you know, you look at some of these cases and you just think, maybe I am for illegal immigration because I want these people to be able to stay. Mm. And what I realized when I heard him say that was, sometimes that is the sign that a law is unjust. Mm. Mm. When you believe the consequences of the law are unfair. That's right. And when you see, you know, people who are here and who, you know, I mean, the Dreamers is actually a very good example, mm. right? They are they have known only this country. They have kept out of trouble. That's how we define them, right? The criminals obviously go into a different category. And um, we think it's unfair. I even, actually, people across the spectrum seem to think it's unfair that they be denied citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so... I might say, well, that might be a sign that the current law is unjust and that the law ought to be changed and that it ought to be made more generous and more, I think, the, as you say, I keep coming back to this idea of the image of God in everyone, which is to say that 
if the law takes seriously that idea, then the most Christian thing you could do with American immigration policy is try to recognize that image, image of God in everyone, no matter where they come from, mm -hmm. and to sort of give everyone an equal, open, and generous opportunity um, at coming and becoming a part uh, mm -hmm. of this country. Which, which, which doesn't undermine at all the distinction you would want to make between legal and illegal. So, for mm -hmm. example, Ephesians 4.24 and other places where, where the New Testament talks about being renewed in the image of God, it talks about it in terms of uh, righteousness and holiness. Yep. Right. So those are moral categories that are associated with that theological idea of being made in God's image. So we, even there, you're not talking about altogether tossing away you know, some conception of right and wrong, uh, mm. some conception of good and evil, even as you're sort of pushing back or, or recognizing in the conscience that something about a current law uh, is suggesting injustice mm. uh, and needs to be looked at and, and sort of worked on there. And this is the kind of hard thinking that Christians not only need to do for themselves, but that the public square very much needs Christians to do, hmm. right? And if, if we surrender um, this calling to sort of work through the scripture and to work through our theology and apply it in the public square, well, that, that's a pretty tremendous means of grace to the culture that's lost, hmm. right? So that brings me to our last question, which we usually wrap up with, which is, what is the kind of duty of the Christian? How should the Christian approach this issue, whatever kind of beliefs they might bring into uh, the, the, the immigration debate? Well, first test the beliefs against the scripture itself, mm -hmm. right? I, I think this is an area where, in so many of our, our sort of political uh, topics, where I think as Christians, we just kind of, we often reflexively think whatever our position is, is the right position. Mm. And we think it's right because we hold it, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and otherwise we wouldn't hold it, right? right. Uh, but seldom do we actually test our thinking against the scriptures and mm. test our thinking against sound theological principles. So the first thing is to say, oh, let me let me prayerfully test this. And one of the best ways to test it is to do it in community with other folk uh, mm. who have different experiences. So folks who have immigrant experiences and folks who have legal experience and folks who uh, have various kinds of backgrounds to sort of who share same, a similar sort of theological framework and commitment who nevertheless can shave each other, iron sharpening iron that way. Mm. So first is to, to test your thinking against the scripture and, and to sort of ask yourself the question, again, am I being more discipled by the culture and by political party than I am by Christ and his word? Um, the other thing I said a moment ago is we just need to be on our knees in prayer. Mm. Uh, and having prayed then, we need to get up and we need to pressure uh, our elected officials for, for what's right, what we think is right. And this isn't to say that all Christians will agree at every point. Um, but uh, we do have a responsibility to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. And in this topic, that's the immigrant. That's the refugee. Uh, that's, that's a lot of folks who are without a home uh, and needing a home, and we should, be, we should be the most hospitable people on the planet. Yeah. I'd only add one thing to that, which is it goes back to something you said, Thabiti. Um, I, think, I think we've established you know, theologically, the bar should be high for what your kind of justification is for restricting immigration. Mm -hmm. And so if you decide that, you know, that's what you believe, sort of test that belief, mm -hmm. right? Kind of be a bit skeptical of yourself. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself if, um, what your kind of reasons you have for those. And is there kind of an ethnic or a nationalist animus mm -hmm. there? If it that's is, right. try to kind of separate that out mm -hmm. and try to think through kind of, 
right reasons for coming round to the the restrictionist position. That's right. Repent of it. Hmm. That 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 by yeah. definition is prejudice. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so to repent of that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Reedy, you want to go ahead and close us in prayer for this one? Absolutely. Father, we give you praise that you love immigrants. Hmm. We give you praise that you chose for yourself a people uh, who are immigrants, uh, who were slaves, who were without a home until you gave them one. And we give you praise, O Lord, that you have given us now an eternal home and made all those who trust in Christ sojourners, pilgrims, on our way to that celestial city. As we make our way there, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be just in all of our dealings uh, in this land. Uh, We're passing through, Lord, but help us to leave footprints uh, of righteousness. Uh, We pray, O Lord, for our country and its leaders. Give them wisdom as they make these hard decisions, uh, trying to balance what is Mm. good and right in protection of the country, but also what is good and right as the country plays a neighborly role uh, to all the people groups and nations of the world. And uh, most of all, we pray for your church, Lord. Uh, We are an embassy here uh, for that coming kingdom. And uh, our embassy, your embassy, should always be open. And so help us, O Lord, to have a gospel focus uh, as we think about things like immigration and help us to have a a neighborly love as we come into contact with those, O Lord, whose home is not yet heaven. Give us grace, O Lord, and eyes to see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.